We have a wonderful team here, brethren, a lot of outstanding men and women here at headquarters. We're very grateful for that and very grateful for the growth in the work. As it was announced, we are growing at almost 9%. I guess Mr. Ruddleson mentioned that in our church growth around the United States and a little bit less, but I think about 8% all around the world. So we're very grateful for what God is doing and thankful that he's using us to the extent he is. And we can give God thanks every day for that. I do hope we can thank God for protecting us and bringing us here to Charlotte. I think we did pick out the right place. We thought of various places to come, but some places get more earthquakes. Not that we don't get any, as we heard, but get more storms and hurricanes and all that kind of thing. And we have been blessed. I would add to what I think Mr. Ames mentioned it, but let's do pray for our brethren over the next couple of days, because this hurricane could be very serious for some of them. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, we just don't know. It could take many lives. It's going right toward Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. and New York City. And it varies here and there. And every few hours they change the exact projection of where it's going to hit. So let's pray for God's people. God's people do go through some trials and God does not put us in a kind of a vacuum. He let ancient Israel go through the first three plagues. If he let nothing happen to us, we would not be humble. We would not appreciate being God's people. We would think, well, we're just special and nothing ever happens to us. Having trials happen to us and our loved ones perhaps will make us more humble, make us more willing to love one another, help one another, forgive one another, and draw us closer to God in the end as if nothing ever happened to us. So we do need to realize that there is a purpose in suffering in many different ways. But I hope all of you can remember to pray for our brethren, uh, of course, around those areas up north that may be strike, having been struck by this hurricane. I gave a sermon back in February. Some of you may remember it. I said we're beginning the gun lap. Mr. Armstrong talked about the gun lap back in the 1970s and 80s before he died and some smirked uh, later because uh, it seemed like time went on. A gun lap is the last lap of a mile run, and I've explained that before. And I really do think with all my heart that we are in the gun lap. The first three-fourths of the work has no doubt been done already as far as timing is concerned, not power. We have just a few years left. And as these things begin to descend upon us, we need to realize that it really is true that time is short. Whether we have another 7 or 11 or 17 years to go, I don't know, and no one knows. But time is certainly drawing to a close, and we need to be aware of that. We are among the very few people on this earth to understand. Mr. John O'Gwen wrote a wonderful, magnificent Bible study course, and many of you have read that. And for those of you who have not done that, please read that and study that. God is still using him in that way. My wife has on his sermons nearly every Sabbath morning. So she gets a sermon by John O'Gwen in the, ser- in the morning and then gets a sermon by someone else in the afternoon. So he's still preaching, still doing the work of God in that way. But in lesson two, as many of you know, he gives a general idea about the timing at the time of the end. And if you read that lesson again, you'll notice that, of course, the end of the 6,000 years, if you count up, he doesn't say it. He just gives you the figures. But if you add it up, it turns out that the 6,000 years would end about 
you know, the Feast of uh, Trumpets or, t- or Atonement in 2018. And so Christ would be coming about that time. And it's a time that we need to re- remember could happen. That means, of course, there'll be seven years before that. And this would be a very powerful season we're entering. I think that he was probably two to five or six years early. I loved him, respected him very deeply and still do. I loved and respected Dr. Hay very much. He was my first roommate, and he had it ending up about 2016 rather than 2018. So all of our men who had knowledge and studied chronology all had the end time, that is the end of the 6,000 years, somewhere between about 2014 and 2020. And we're certainly getting close, even though you could be two or three years off or five years off as far as that's concerned when you think of all the accession years of the kings and how they have to count these overlapping years and you can't be exact. And most of them acknowledge that. They would say that very clearly. No one can pinpoint the exact year. That's why God says, watch, watch these events. But brethren, we're entering a very important time and we should be watching these events because they certainly are speeding up. Mr. Ruddleson mentioned some of them. Mr. Ames mentioned some of them. And we certainly do need to be aware. I wanted to give you kind of an overview uh, today. I won't be here on the Day of Trumpets. What's just ahead for you? I'm going to try to aim it more at you and God's church and what you might expect and how you might prepare for it personally. Turn with me, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 33 in your Bibles. Most of you know where I'm going for this. Ezekiel chapter 33 gives what we call the Ezekiel Commission. And Mr. Armstrong, Ted said again and again, and brethren, even though we don't worship him like some of these other groups do, we deeply honor him. And it is a fact that nearly all these people out there and all these different splits that have come off from worldwide, where did they learn about the Sabbath? About 99% of them learned it from Mr. Armstrong. Where did they learn about the holy days and the whole plan of God? About 99% of them learned it from Mr. Armstrong. Where did they learn so many other things? Where did I learn about the truth? God used that man to start off the big work in modern times. And although he had human faults and, and mistakes, as I do, and all of us do, God used him very powerfully. And he did feel that these things were coming upon us and gave us the big picture of it more than any human being did in the last several hundred years that we know about. And he did say, as God's servant, as God's apostle, as I still believe he was, he did tell us that all of us had part in what he called the Ezekiel Commission. So when you read this, think about what you're on the staff, in a sense, of the ambassador. He was the ambassador at that time to give that commission, the main ones. And we have more of a team here. Mr. Armstrong, for years, did the only program but we have Mr. Hernandez doing it in French and in Spanish, and Mr. Apartin until recently did it in French, and Mr. Ames and I and Mr. King and Mr. Wally Smith are all doing it in English and so on. Others of our men are writing wonderful articles, Dr. Winnale and Mr. Wakefield and a number of other very fine writers are all helping get out this warning and this message to the world. But God says here to all of us on the staff of the Ezekiel warning team, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, speak to the children of your people. 
Remember, they did not have a church back there. It was one man. God always used one man in those times. Today we have a church, so we together are the Ezekiel in a sense. And say, when I bring a sword upon a land and the people of the land make take a man from their territory and make him their watchman when he sees the sword coming upon the land, and we see that. And I hope you've been watching world news. I've been sent five or ten, and I'm not exaggerating. I get clippings and news items from all over the world. The brethren and leading men in our work send me, and they've been several directly saying, that German, the German Empire is rising up, or the Fourth Reich, they're calling it. The word Reich in German means rule, but that means a kind of a German Empire. They say it's rising up right now. The Germans are guiding this situation in Europe right now so that the Southern European countries are indebted to them and going to come under their sway more and more. It will be, as Herbert W. Armstrong said, way back. About the time I was born, he began to say it, and I heard him say it in the mid-1940s over the radio, and old, many of you older brethren were alive and heard him say some of these things. He said it will be, the final beast power will be a German-led empire or beast, a United States of Europe. It's more like a, a revived Roman Empire, though, of course. And so he said, when I bring a sword upon the land, and that's what's going to happen. And the people of the land take a man from their territory and make them their watchman when he sees the sword coming, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people. We've got to blow the trumpet, brethren. We're grateful to get 8 or 9% increase in our, our attendance. We're thankful to God to get 6 or 7% increase in our income, which we continue to have even in a time of recession and terrible financial upheavals. We're grateful for all those things. But this work, and if we don't do it, God will raise up rocks to do it. And I mean that. Someone has to do a work 60 to 90 or 150 times more powerful than what we're doing. Most of you older people, you know that. You walk up and down the streets of Charlotte, and virtually no one has even heard of us here in our hometown. Start walking up and down your neighborhood. Just before Mr. Armstrong died... Somehow I was able to learn. I was interested, of course, but not trying to check up on him in a negative way. It was my work, too. I gave my whole life for it ever since I was 19 years old. And I talked to the brethren in Britain, the leading four men in the work over there, and then Mr. Apartin in France and Mr. Schnee over in Germany. And all the men in Britain told me that only about one out of 100 would have even heard the name Herbert Armstrong or Plain Truth or Worldwide Church of God or anything. And over in the continent, Mr. Schnee and Apartin told me that only about one out of 1,000 would have heard. And that was right just a couple of months before Mr. Armstrong died. We just began to commence to do the work back then. And we've just barely began to commence to finish the work today. We've got to do a powerful work. And so let's try to think big. Let's try to cry out to God to help each one of us use our time, our talents, our energy, our passion, our lives to do the work of God today. So we've got to do that with all our hearts. So he said, if the watchman, verse 6, sees the sword coming and we see these things beginning to happen and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and the sword comes and take away any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity. 
but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. You see, if we refuse to do God's work, we're going to have blood on our hands. And God says so right here. And in many other places, he shows that a sense we are obligated. It's not a choice. Paul says, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. So God wants us to be involved right up to our eyeballs. He has taken away in his iniquity as everyone sins, but his blood will require at the watchman's hand. So you, he's talking to each one of us, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them from me. So let's try with all of our hearts, brethren, to do anything we can to help further the work of God and to stir this nation to wake up. They're not very stirred. Even today, I was trying to hear some news, and it was very hard even at 1030 and 1130, and only on the hour they gave a little bit of news, on the radio at least, about the hurricane. I guess people are tired of hearing about it, but they're not stirred, and you can see that. They've had hurricanes before. This may turn out to be the biggest one ever to hit the East Coast. We don't know that. And brethren, we do need to get our balance. And I want to help you spiritually as well as just, you know, chronologically and understanding these things. I don't pray. I've thought about it in the past and talked to other ministers. I don't pray, and I'm sure most of us don't. I hope we don't. Some of us may have done so in the past, bring these things powerfully and wake people up. But I say, Father, bring these things that have to happen but do it in your mercy and spare your people as much as possible. He knows the best way. He knows how powerful this hurricane should be. He knows how powerful the next earthquake should be. And the tremendous earthquakes that are no doubt going to hit the West Coast. I prayed that God would help us to get on the West Coast again with our message because we kind of left there and we used to have more stations and activities. And I felt kind of guilty. So as Mr. Pyle knows, I was talking to Mr. Pyle and Mr. Ames and our team, and we were able to get a station in Los Angeles. Then we got a station in Fresno. Now we got a station in San Francisco that's also broadcasting the message. And now we have lined up another station. I think it's September 17th, another few weeks, is going to begin airing Tomorrow's World up in the Seattle-Tacoma area. So we're reaching again the major cities out there because they will get big earthquakes. I'm positive that's where the major earthquake faults are, and God usually works through the normal things that might happen anyway. And he can intervene, of course, above and beyond that as well. But we need to be aware and pray that God will shake the people in his mercy and wake them up before it is too late and do our part in our prayers and our tithes, our offerings, our zealous friendliness and reaching out to others in every way we can to help them understand, to help them wake up while we have the opportunity. And so it is our responsibility, every one of us, to get involved in every way that we can. So we're going to have these terrible things come upon us. The biggest quake in 67 years has has just hit here uh, in this area, and it didn't hurt very much, but it was a significant because it hadn't happened for so long. And now a monster hurricane is coming up the coast. We don't know how many lives may be lost up in New York, in Washington, Philadelphia, and that area. It may turn out to be more than we think. We don't know. And certainly we have the most horrifying financial crisis that has ever hit the United States. 
And a lot of you don't fully recognize that. I know that some of us here are reading a lot about that. And I guess our most astute one, and just the details here, is Mr. Wakefield. And he has studied that a lot and has written this recent article. I hope you'll all read in the latest Tomorrow's World magazine called The Debt Bomb. And uh, there are a lot of things like that happening that people in the bond market know and people under the scenes know we are teetering on a massive depression. And many, many hundreds of news pundits are now coming up with that and recognizing we are on the verge of something awful. And brethren, the riots that we saw over London were a little precursor of what's to come over there later. All these kids have been able to do whatever they want to do. They don't have to work, and they're supported by the government, and they don't have a sense of responsibility. And so they're out rioting. How much more will that hit us when literally millions more Americans are laid off from their jobs because of this financial crisis, and they won't have any income, and they'll be out wandering up and down the streets? This may happen not within 20 years, but within two or three years from now. Back in February, if you remember, I warned you specifically. I said a lot of these things are going to be happening big time. I didn't say finish. I said begin to happen big time, not in decades, but within the next three to six years. Within the next three to six years, okay? It's beginning to happen already. But it's going to happen really badly within the next two and a half years before that three-year period ends. So you watch what happens this very autumn as some of these things begin to give out these government programs. You watch what is going to happen in the world when perhaps the, the uh, Palestinians come in there and try to force Israel to give up vast parts of their land and force a Palestinian state in there. That's coming in before the United Nations next month. In about two or three weeks from now, lots of things like that are on the verge of happening. If I exper- my experience means anything, and I'm not smart, I've just been around a while, these things are on the verge of happening more than have ever occurred in modern human history. So many of these things in prophecy. So we have a tremendous job to do. And let's understand that. Massive drought is still on. I read the papers, of course, each day, and I try to skim, not every day, but most days I'll look at the temperature uh, record there for uh, Austin, where my daughter Rebecca is, and Dallas, where Mr. Dan Hall is pastoring, and those areas, 103, 105, 107, every single day for weeks and weeks, it's been over 100 degrees. They're still having record-breaking heat. It was reported in the paper this morning. Record-breaking. The corn crops are being ruined, and the paper today pointed out how the prices of corn and wheat and some of these other staples is going to have to go up. We'll enter a period of tremendous inflation in food prices. At the same time, millions will be out of work. That has caused riots already in other nations. They can't pay for food. People get very excited when they can't eat. We've not had that happen to us yet in this nation. But it's coming. Is it going to come in two months? No. So don't get excited and say, if it doesn't happen two months, I'm all wrong. I said it will begin to happen within the next three to six years. But I think you're going to see a lot of these things suddenly coming together in the next year or two, and certainly within three years. So these things are big. 
And we need to understand it and pray that God will intervene and pray that God will guide people to wake up while they can and God that will guide us to help our people understand before it's too late and do this job of the Ezekiel messenger. That is our opportunity. And that's exciting. I was baptized back in December 1949 and I made hundreds of mistakes and I continue to make mistakes. But everyone around me knows, at least I think one thing I do have is part of maybe my Welch heritage. I can't take, take credit for all myself, but the Welch are noted for being emotional and, 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 and musical and the wonderful Welch singers over there, if you've ever heard them, and uh, other aspects of that temperament. But I have a, a, a sense of a crusade, and ever since I was baptized, I've been a crusader. And I'm going to continue being a crusader until I die. I hope I will with God's help. So I hope all of you can share that with me at least and get excited. We are in a crusade at the time of the end. Back in Matthew 24, turn there with me, Matthew 24. And again, all you older brethren know that this is the famous Olivet Prophecy where Jesus Christ was warning people and was answering the question, of course, what would be the sign of his coming in the end of the age? And so they asked him in verse 3, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And he said, take heed that no man deceive you. He said, there'll be false preachers coming along. Then he said, there'll be nation against nation, ethnos, ethnic groups fighting each other, even in the same nation over Nigeria, one tribe fighting another. And all over the world, we're finding small wars happening everywhere. And then kingdom against kingdom, major nations, world war breaking out. And there will be famines. So there is going to be a great lack of food. And pestilences or disease epidemics will begin to occur. And we'll begin to see those happening probably again within this period I'm talking about. I'm not talking about 20 years They'll begin to happen, no doubt, within the next three to six years, more than ever before. Earthquakes, not just a small earthquake or a medium-sized one, I guess you could say it was, 5.8, but big earthquakes, Luke says, in various places. And all these, verse 8, are the beginning of sorrows. Brethren, we are entering a time of sorrows. And I don't want to make you feel bad because when we get into this time, we have to constantly remember that that it has to get darkest just before the dawn. When these came, start, things start happening. Most of you know that. You could think, wow, Christ is coming soon. Every time things happen, we should think that as God's people, Christ is coming soon and be encouraged by it. But for the world as a whole and those who are not walking with God, it will be a time of sorrows and terrible things are going to happen. He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. The great tribulation will come plus individual trials and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. As far as the church is concerned, and he's talking to his disciples here, the world does not know us yet. They're not going to hate us until they know who we are and where we are. So thankfully, we haven't had any bricks thrown through our windows yet, but the time will come when we will. And they will come after us. And then many will be offended, betray one another, and hate one another. Then many false prophets, all kinds of self-made 
apostles and prophets and teachers will rise up and say there's some great person and so on, which has already begun to happen with some of these other former worldwide ministers giving themselves outrageous titles that Mr. Armstrong never gave them. God never gave them. They just give themselves the title. Kind of reminds me of Napoleon was supposed to be crowned by the Pope. And when the time came for the ceremony, why Napoleon was so filled with himself, he reached out and grabbed the crown out of the Pope's hands and crowned himself. (laughs) Some of you remember that in history. Anyway, that's what's beginning to happen with some of these guys. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will wax cold. So, brethren, it's it's something we have to realize. You can begin to give up and quit and say, well, everybody's doing it. It's so easy to take drugs or to get into illicit sex or do this or that or something else. But God is not mocked. And sooner or later, he's going to intervene. And I think that time is coming sooner now. And he's going to shake this world to its foundations and shake these people. And they're going to have to realize eventually it is God speaking. And then he said, because lawless will abound, the love of many will wax cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. So we've got to go through this time with faith and courage and understanding and not give up and quit along the way. Never give up. As Churchill said, never, 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 never give up. I've got that on a stone tablet in my office that someone gave me. And that's a wonderful uh, Churchillian saying that many of you, of course, are familiar with. But it's very important. You've got to learn that. Don't give up except if you're on the wrong path or whatever and can prove that. But if you're on a right path and doing the right thing, as he said, don't give up. Now, brethren, turn with me back to Jeremiah. Remember the book of Jeremiah was written, and all scholars recognize this, over 100 years after ancient Israel went into its captivity. They'd already gone in their captivity. And Jeremiah lived about 100 or 120 years later. So he's not writing about something that happened 120 years ago. He's writing about, frankly, today, because it still hasn't happened. And I hope all of you new brethren will get Mr. John O'Gwen's wonderful booklet on the United States and Britain and Bible prophecy. If you haven't read that booklet, please get that booklet. You older brethren, go back and read it again. That is such a powerful, wonderful truth, who we are as our peoples as a whole. Some of you I know are of other races. It's still something you need to understand because when the tribulation comes and the drought and famine comes and the atomic bombs come raining down, none of that stuff has any race consciousness. It's going to happen to all of us. And we all need to understand what's going to happen because we all will suffer together unless we're walking with God. So he tells the modern peoples, and he's speaking to you and to me. Now, these are the words the ever-living one spoke, verse 4, Jeremiah 30, verse 4, concerning who? The Jews? No, concerning Israel and Judah. Some of you are new. Why does he say Israel and Judah? Most of you have been taught, well, Israel means Jew and Jew means Israel. No, it does not. There are 50 states in the United States, and all 50 states are American, but now, and they're one of the states is California, it's the biggest states. So all Californians are Americans, but not all Americans are Californians. Do you see the difference? All Jews were part of the 12 tribes of Israel, the house of Israel, 
but the house of Israel was not all Jews. Jewish, the Jews were just one tribe out of 12. And they were the most outstanding tribe in certain ways. The very word Judah means praise. And if you look at the top scientists and top musicians in so many areas, the Jews outnumber others way beyond their percentage-wise of the population. They're brilliant people as a whole. The other great tribes were Ephraim and Manasseh. The God gave them the birthright, the right of birth, the double blessing. And, of course, God said that Joseph, our peoples, the descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph, read it back in, in Genesis chapter 48 and 49, that they would become the great nation and a great company or commonwealth as the British Empire has become. So you have one great nation and a great company or commonwealth. We have been those peoples. God's word stands and it's going to continue to stand. They can't fight it. They can make fun of it, but it is happening and it's going to happen. But anyway, he says to our peoples, Israel and Judah, we've heard a voice of trembling. Why do I see every man grab his loins like a woman having a baby? Men are being to be scared to death. Alas, for that day is great. Verse 7 so that none is like it. No other day is like this coming day. Jesus said this tribulation is so great, there's never been anything like it before in human history, no, nor ever shall be. Jesus said that. Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 and 2. None is like this coming day on Jacob or Israel. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. But brethren, boy, does he get in at first. It's going to be awful when it comes. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that I will break his yoke. A yoke of slavery will be put on the necks of our people. And I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more enslave them. I'm reading from the New King James because it's the best translation in the English language. It's like the King James, but just a little bit clearer in modern English, but just as accurate based on the same majority text, the received text. The New International Version, we used to kid about it, the NIV, meaning non-inspired version, NIV, and some of these others are sort of paraphrases. They're, They're interpretations. They're not really direct translations. So if you study those as your main study Bible, I'm sorry for you, you won't get it. You'll find all kinds of errors in there that will give you part of the truth, but not all the truth in the right way. So anyway, God says, we will be enslaved, but they shall serve the Lord their God. And when is this going to happen? Way back when? They shall serve God. And notice verse 9, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. The time of the resurrection from the dead. That tells us when this is going to happen just ahead of us at the end of this age. And then he says, don't fear, Jacob. I'll bring you back from your captivity and all this. And he notice says then later here in verse 15, why does all this happen? People ask. Verse 15, why do you cry about your affliction? He says, your sorrow is incurable because of the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased. I have done these things to you. That's why these things are coming upon us. 
And when you read in the paper that they're beginning to teach little children right down in the fourth, fifth, and sixth grades about homosexuality, and we're all the same, and it's just fine for men to marry men and women to marry women, and teach them about different, frankly, pornographic and different kinds of stuff it's not even good to talk about. They're teaching little children this stuff in our nation right now. And over in Britain and up in Canada, even worse, a lot of you brethren in Britain and Canada, you know that. It's getting awful. And our society is at the end of an age. And God is not mocked. He's not going to let this go on too many more years. They had this big gay pride pride parade up in New York recently. And so saw pictures on the TV and men and women jumping up and down and men kissing men there in public and patting each other on the rear end. You know, it'll make you want to vomit. We are a different nation. We have done things in the last few years that would never, ever been thought of. When I was a young man, just in the last 30 to 60 years, these chains have turned upside down. The Roman Empire took hundreds of years to go down. America's taking a few decades, not hundreds of years, just a few decades, and we'll be down and out if we keep going that direction. We despise God. We despise God's laws, and God's not going to be mocked. And so he says, these things are going to happen because of our sins. Notice now back in Leviticus chapter 26. And remember, brethren, this is Leviticus chapter 26. And remember, brethren, Christ was the God of the Old Testament. As it says in 1 Corinthians 10:4, that rock, that rock of Israel, that rock was Christ. And I've said so many times, remember Hebrews 13, I mean, yes, Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He deals in basically the same way with people at all times. So he says what's going to happen to our people today as he talks to our ancestors. And some of these, obviously, if you read it carefully, indicates it's going to happen at the time of the end. He told our ancestors back here in Leviticus 26, verse 3, if you walk in my statutes, what are his statutes? The holy days are listed among his statutes. Tithing is listed among his statutes. And keep my commandments and perform them. Then I will give you rain in due season. You'll dwell in your land safely. Verse 8, I'll cause peace in the land. And all these blessings will come. But, he says, notice that part starts over in verse 14. If you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments... And if you despise my statutes, and we do, brethren, we despise God's statutes. We make fun of his Sabbaths. People laugh at you or smear at you if they think you're keeping these old Jewish holy days or the Jewish Sabbath or anything else like that. And in their heart, our whole nation does. They've taken God out of the public square. They're taking down the commandments. They don't even want the Ten Commandments posted in some of our schools and some of our public buildings. Why? Why? Because they don't love or respect even anymore the Lord God of the armies of Israel. That's an old Jewish myth to talk about the Lord God of the armies of Israel. He's very much alive, and he's sending those armies back here in a few years. And we better believe it. You despise my statutes. Or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you. Terrible things. And as Mr. John O'Gwen pointed out in some sermons and an article, 
he led us into this. It wasn't some shocking new truth. It was a new emphasis, though, and a new truth in that sense, a very wonderful. That's the first thing God said would happen. And what's the first major thing that began to happen over the last 10 or 15 years? 9-11. Is something big going to happen once again in a, in a couple weeks when 9-11 comes up again? They say the Arabs, the terrorists are plotting something big, but we don't know. We'll see. And we don't have long to wait. But at any rate, that's what began to happen. Terrorism. Terror, terrorism, it can be translated that, over you. Then what comes next? Wasting disease and fever. That's all going to begin to happen. And you'll sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. They say that much of our corn and wheat and soybeans and rice, some of our food staples, have already been sold to China and Japan and other nations on the commodity exchange. And if there's a real shortage... They would be mad at us if we gave that food to our people because we would be stealing it from them because they have pre-purchased it already. And if we have a major catastrophe, which we will have within the next several years, probably a few years, we're going to have trouble. They say, we bought this and you can't have it. And we'll say, no, you can't have it and we need it. And we're going to have more trouble with them and they'll cut us off in other ways. It's going to create international misunderstandings. So your enemies shall eat it. And maybe the enemies later will conquer us and take it over that way. But even in the meantime, they can take it just through the commodity exchanges. They're already doing that, buying it. And articles about that just the other day in the Wall Street Journal. The other nations have bought much of our food supplies in advance. You shall sow your seed in vain. Your enemies shall eat it. I'll set my face against you. And those who hate you shall reign over you. Yes, they will conquer you. And after all this, if you still don't obey me, then I will punish you seven times, or as many scholars say this can be translated sevenfold, sevenfold more. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens as iron and your earth like bronze. In other words, it will be very great dry spells like we're having through vast areas of Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, New Mexico, and so forth, one of the biggest areas of drought in modern American history, and it's still going on right now as I speak. I will break the pride of your power. Our armed forces will be decimated because we will not have the ammunition. In some cases, we will lose heart and patriotism of those troops who may begin to turn on their leaders in other cases, and all kinds of things will happen. We won't have the money to pay the troops. It's going to bring us down. God will break the pride of our power. We won't have the power to pay our national debts. We won't have the power to maintain our standard of living. All this is going to hurt because when people are running up and down the streets of Charlotte, and for you brethren up in New York, we're filming this in Washington, D.C., where much of the problem lies, as we know in this country, the wrong government we have, this world cries out for God's government to come, Christ's government literally crying out for it. And when these things begin to hit and you have big, huge mobs of young men without work and they're in mad, we're going to have riots and we're going to have people murdered and butchered and raped and tormented and, and every, their whole lives overturned in a way that's never occurred in this country. So we need to understand that. It won't be fun. 
But God says these things will happen because our sins are multiplying, and they really are. Then we go to Deuteronomy 28, if you turn there. And for those of you who are new, this is a companion chapter, the same type of of thing that God gives back in Leviticus 26. Turn to Deuteronomy 28, he says, here to our ancestors. Now, verse 1, it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe all his commandments, the Lord will set you high above all nations of the earth. Who has been set high above all nations of the earth? The peoples of the United States and the British Empire at our peak. And all these blessings will come upon you. And he gives them one after the other. But then he says in verse 15, It will come to pass if you do not obey the voice of God and to observe carefully, not just half-heartedly, but carefully his, all his commandments and his statutes, all these curses will come. Curse shall you be in the city. Curse shall you be in the country. We're going to have bad crops. We're going to have trouble all over. Curse shall be your basket and store, your food supply. Curse shall be the fruit of your body. More of your children are going to be born deformed or get diseases right away. And the produce of your land. Curse shall you be when you go out and come in. The eternal will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke and all that you do. Brethren, it's beginning to happen even now in parts of our modern Israel society. You talk about the people in South Africa, and I don't want to make them down there mad at each other, but you're already having a lot of that. It's become payback time in the lives of those who were felt oppressed by the whites down there, and so now many of them are being hurt and and, and scared. They're fleeing with the thousands. They're scared! And that's what's going to start happening in many of our cities and part of the United States and part of Great Britain. When you have different ethnic groups come in, you're going to have one ethnic group hating the other. As I've said before, we in God's church had better have God's spirit. We'd better realize that God is working with all of us and not hate each other and not fight each other, not give in to that. But it's going to be coming to on us big time, not somewhere else, but right here, right here. In Charlotte, in New York, Washington, L.A., Chicago, London, and so on. Let's understand it. And these things will certainly hurt our people in their whole way of life because they've turned away from God. The eternal will send cursing and confusion, troubles, upsets, fights of all kinds. And he says over in verse 25, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies, and you should become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. What does that mean? That means that the former great peoples of Britain who had this whole empire and were famous in helping build societies along a Western way at least and do a lot of good overall. They gave them hospitals and clinics and, and taught them cleanliness and stopped the practice of sati in India where women had to throw their bodies right on their husband's burning pier, burn themselves to death. That was part of their society had all this awful stuff going on. The British did not do all bad. Most of you young people have seen all these movies like Gandhi and Passage to India to try to crucify what the British said. That's wrong. They did a lot of good, an awesome amount of good. But some of them were a little bit arrogant about it. They were human. They were carnal. 
But now that's going to bring those people down. It's going to bring America down and the things that we have done. And so he says, these people have been so great and had all this money and gave all these loans as we've done to other nations and had the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe and so on. You shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. All the nations around the world as we come down and are suffering and they hear of food riots and race riots and class riots, all this over here and people starving and people diseased, they'll say, what in the world is going on? These Americans used to come over here and act so rich and they did certain good and gave us money and now they're at the bottom of the pit. We don't understand it. They're going to begin to understand it. But God help us to get the message out as best we can. He said, the Lord will bring, verse 36, uh, you and the king or leader whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. We will be taken into slavery. And he says in verse 41, you shall beget sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. I used to worry about that with Elizabeth and Mike and Jim and Rebecca, my older children. God didn't cause it to happen then. And then my sons David and Jonathan, who are here today, came along. And I hoped it wouldn't happen to them. And it still hasn't happened to them. But it may happen to some of my grandchildren. They may be taken away unless their parents and all of us who have children or grandchildren walk with God. And through our help, some of them may be protected and so on. They shall go into captivity. Locusts shall consume your trees, the produce of your land, the alien, the foreigner who is not an Israelite, who is among you shall rise higher and higher. I'm not trying to put down anyone. I'm just saying that all through our land we see people of other races and other cultures even, other backgrounds. They're becoming mayors of cities and governors of states and other high offices, as you know. They shall rise higher and higher, and you shall come down lower and lower. He tells the Anglo-Saxon Celtic people, the descendants, is that happening? Wow, is it happening right now, the last 10 to 25 years. He shall lend to you. Some of these people become the rich ones, but you shall not lend to him. And it's happening, especially in a relation with foreign nations, who are our biggest creditors or lenders. China. China has loaned us more money. We're not borrowing from one another so much as we are from the Gentiles, so to speak. He shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head and you shall be the tail. And that's beginning to happen internally as well as externally. Was well, that a blessing? It's not that these people are bad. When I used to preach against the Assyrians, saying the modern Germans are the Assyrians, some people would say, you don't like the Germans? No, I love the Germans. One of the most lovable people that I've ever known was Dr. Herman L. Hay, my first roommate in Ambassador College. We pronounce it like a bale of hay, hay, but it was, it was the German pronunciation. And, and then Mr. Kenneth Herman was a dear friend I spent the summer of 1950 with, German ancestry, many others, and so on. Wonderful people, and they will be one awesome people in God's kingdom when they have God's Holy Spirit. People of great capacity. But God will use them to bring us down. And I'm partly German, as I've said. I'm one sixteenth German anyway. Through my relative, Ickes, Harold Ickes, was the Secretary of the Interior under President Franklin Roosevelt. So I am one. <laughs> you want to put it that way, partly. That's not the point. 
The point is that we who are mainly Anglo-Saxon, Ephraimites and Manassites, God is using different people. He will use the Germans and the Italians and the Chinese and the Japanese and all the other people. And in our nation, some of the Arab and American Indian type peoples, I'm partly one of those two, to humble and spank us. He uses different nations to be his rod of anger to humble us. So we're the ones being spanked, and we need to realize that. But all these curses shall, they are curses the way it works out on us. We're being cursed, shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments, plural, and his statutes. Again, brethren, please go back and read the statutes of God. They're not done away. They're magnified by God in the New Testament. The holy days are the statutes, so we do not do away with the Passover, but we do not kill a young unblemished lamb on the 14th and, and let his blood spurt out and, and eat this roast lamb with bitter herbs. We take the red wine symbolizing Christ's blood, the ultimate lamb of God. We keep the Passover at the right time, but the symbols have changed. And in tithing, as God explains carefully in Hebrews chapter 7, the law, not God's commandments, is talking about the tithing law. The law is changed because the priesthood has changed. The law of tithing has changed and reverts back to the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is the New Testament ministry of Jesus Christ. But the statute is still there. It's still a commandment of God through the statutes. And many other statutes tell you not to intermarry and not to go in in detail even, you know, as far as sex sins are concerned. Don't go in under your niece or or your stepmother or any other thing like that. He spells that out in detail. These are all statutes of God telling us how to live. If you have a flat roof and people can walk on it, put a railing around it so people don't fall off. Just basic things. Many of those things are already in the building codes of cities today. But God gave it back before there are any such building codes, and he knows what's best, statutes of God. So God tells us we'd better be keeping all of them. These curses shall come because you didn't do this, and these curses shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder for your descendants forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom I'll send against you, and he shall put a yoke of iron upon your neck until he has destroyed you. Eventually, this coming United States of Europe, this beast power will conquer us and take millions of our people into slavery. This sounds like a repetition to some of you, but you may not have heard it just this way. And I do want to have it once or twice a year to kind of remind you these things are real. And these things are speeding up, brethren. And we need to think seriously as hurricanes descend upon us and the earthquakes increase. God is very real. He will be speaking to us through these things. And we do need to understand. Let's go now to Deuteronomy. I mean, Proverbs, excuse me. Proverbs chapter 24. If you would, Proverbs uh, chapter 24. And here's something that I sometimes read as part of the offertory at the feast. I never heard it done, but I think it ties in. And it certainly ties in with this sermon. 
Proverbs chapter 24, verse 10. If you faint in the day of adversity, boy, the biggest day of adversity in human history is getting close to coming now. Your strength is small. Don't give up and quit. Never, never, never give up. Deliver those who are drawn toward death. Who's being drawn toward death? This whole nation and Canada and Britain and our lovely people over in Australia and New Zealand and all around the world. They're being led toward this, the greatest tribulation in human history. Don't and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. He says, help them, wake them up. Say, there's a bridge blown out down here. Stop before you kill yourself. Get away from this world. Come out of this world, God commands. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will lean not remember to each man according to his deeds, or as the King James Version says, to his works? Brethren, some of you even now are holding back. Many of you, you don't give your life to God. I know that. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm just trying to help you. I have no benefit in hurting you. And humanly, I'm near the end of my life. I'd like to give you a warning once in a while before I'm not here to do it anymore. If you're not praying very much, you're not studying God's Word, you practically never fast, you cut way back on what you give to God's work and give just a bare, bare minimum, I've been astonished, frankly, not just here. It's happened here. It happened back in global. It happened back in worldwide Church of God when we were still on the on track, supposedly, under Mr. Armstrong. But every now and then we're thinking about hiring someone or promoting them or ordaining them, and we check their tithing record. We don't check everybody's tithing record all the time at all, but sometimes we feel we should for certain reasons. And we've been astonished. And a man or a woman about ready to be ordained a deacon or deaconess or hired as a teacher or put in some important job was not tithing at all, giving a six or eight hundred dollars a year. Yet they were obviously making, you know, thirty to sixty or ninety thousand dollars a year. Why? Because God is not real to those people. We have people in the church who are sitting on thousands or tens of thousands of dollars, and they give practically nothing to God's church. Practically nothing. Why? Their heart is not in God's work. That's why God is aware. God is not mocked. Many of us could help others and don't help them near as much as we should. And I've been guilty of that, too. As I'm now, I'm 81 and had a stroke. I can't have people over as much as we used to, but I would like to do more. I would like to visit more people, talk to more people, have different ones of you into my office at least, and talk to you personally that way, even though I can't get out and visit you all in your homes. But I could lay down my life more fully for Christ every day of my life. And many of us in the work, I won't name them, but some of our top men, I've noticed that they give, I know what they're making, and some of them will give 18 to 23 or 25% of their salary to God's work and tithes and offerings. Yet others with essentially the same job give practically nothing. Why? Some are really zealous and some are not. Some figured the very lowest amount of tithe they can possibly give and barely give 10% after taxes and after everything they can think of to take out. Well, that doesn't bother me. I'm not going around trying to get them. I'm just saying, for your sake, any of you out there, whatever job you have and whatever you are 
and your brethren around the world. God loves what? A cheerful giver. First Corinthians chapter nine. Or is that second Corinthians? I sometimes forget myself of these chapters I used to teach so often. So God loves a cheerful giver to give generously according to your means. And we all ought to give generously to God's work and be zealous about that and be zealous about praying, about fasting and saying, God, help us. One of the greatest needs in God's work now is for more ministers. And I ask all of you to pray that God would put it in the hearts and minds of more young men and more young middle-aged men. And I'm not against old men. As I've said in our meetings, I am one. How can I be against them? But in the ministry, we basically would like people coming in brand new, somewhere between 25 and 55. And even anyone under 55 is young by my account. And Mr. Partin and I remember years ago decided that that old age begins at 90. <laughs> okay. But at any rate, anywhere in there, if you give your life to God and you're studying, and you're drilling yourself, you're fasting, you're seeking God, God can use more and more of you young men in Kansas City and Dallas and Los Angeles, you know, and all these other nations, in London and, and Sydney, around the world, in the ministry. And all over this world, we need more people that are willing to give their lives to God and not try to cop out and have some reason why they can't do that. Well, God's watching each one of us. He is testing us. He is testing us. Do you people really believe that God is alive? Do you really believe this is the work of God? What is holding you back if you believe that? So I hope that you can wake up and have that attitude. Notice back in Galatians now, if you would, brethren. I'm turning now to the New Testament, to the book of Galatians, chapter 6. He says here in verse 6, Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, Let him who is taught in the word share in all good things with him who teaches. In other words, give generously to the ministry and to the day, to the work. Because back in Paul's day, he didn't need a lot of money. Why? Was he so wonderful? Well, he was wonderful. But how many television bills did he have? How many big, huge multi-tens of thousands of dollar bills that he had for printing the magazine and all these other things we have today. Zero. Zero. It's a different world. And I've tried to pattern the work after what I saw God use Mr. Armstrong to do, and we do have those bills. And to reach the world, we have to get on television and radio and the printing press and have the Internet more and more and more and reach the world. It all takes money. So we do need that very, very much. And we need to pray that God will cause that. We need to pray that God will give more, of course, young men the zeal to come into the ministry full time. He says, verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, he will also reap. If you make good money and you sit on it, you never share it with God's work. You say, well, maybe I'll give it to them when I die. Well, somehow it may go somewhere else. You don't know that. You don't know the circumstances, the twists and turns. Give what you can while you can. Give what you can while you can and be zealous and pray that others will do the same. For he who sows to the flesh, you know, each one of us could take big trips to the Riviera, if we make good money at least, and do this and do that. But we don't need to do all that. We can save some of that and try to give more to God's work will of the flesh reap corruption, 
but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap eternal life. So, brethren, let's get real. Let's try to understand our whole body, our mind, our heart should be in God's work and serve in every way we can. Turn back to the book of James at this point, brethren. James chapter 4. Turn to James chapter 4 and a very meaningful passage here that applies to all of us in God's church. And this certainly does apply to you, brethren, up in Toronto and you, brethren, in Sydney, as well as the brethren in London, New York, and L.A., and here in Charlotte. He says in James chapter 4, Where do wars and fights come from among you? We have fights and arguments in God's church about jobs and about who gets this or that, and we have fights in the church. I told you about the coffee pot wars years ago in one of our churches back in the Mid-South where the ladies were going to get, they decided they, the church needed a new coffee pot, and they were going to come and talk about it the next week. And somehow, one of the wealthier ones, I guess, and she was that or just more generous, she went out and bought the whole coffee pot on her, on her own. Instead of being glad the other women were so jealous they couldn't stand it, she bought the coffee pot. She gets all the credit. <laughs> you see what I mean? So I call it the coffee pot wars. You'd be surprised what people get all bent out of shape about. It shows how shallow their minds are when they do that. Why do you have upsets and little fights sometimes in your job or here in the office, in our office even, and around the world in the churches? You lust and do not have. You murder. And in the world, he's talking, of course, carnal people and covet and cannot obtain, you fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Ask God to use you. If you can't buy the coffee pot, maybe you can do something even more important, you see. Ask God to use you, and you don't receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Some people in the church are literally adulterers or adulteresses in their own lives. They get to frustrated at certain points in their life and they get to looking around and so on and let the Satan get in there and stir them up. And that has happened in God's church down through the ages. And he's talking, no doubt, partly spiritually too, but I'm sure he's talking physically because this book was written to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. If you read back in chapter 1... Verse 1 of James. Whoever therefore will be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you're filled with all these ideas of being important, self-important, making more money, hanging on to more money, strutting around, and then getting your mind on self and getting full sexual fulfillment inside or outside of marriage and all the other things you have your mind on, lust and vanity and jealousy and greed... He says, if you're a friend of the world, what are you? You become an enemy of God. And please, brethren, any of you involved in this and any of the churches around the world, let this wake you up. We are at the end of an age. Don't do that. Give your life to God and really mean it. I know people have temptations. I've had many temptations even since I've been converted. I've told you about some of them. I'd have five or ten women sort of push themselves at me over the years. My own wife was telling me, my present wife right now, about some woman that was very beautiful. She kept saying, she's beautiful. I didn't tell her the problem at the time, but I did, well, a few weeks ago, I guess. I told her, this woman, you kept saying she's so beautiful. And she came into my office and, 
and uh, rub my hand and sometimes and things. And I, I, w- I wasn't stupid. I, I thought, oh, I've got to get away from her. And, and you know, the things like that happen in our lives. Things can happen and make you think, well, you know, my wife's tired or she's pregnant. Here's this younger woman and has all this beauty. So what? I want to be in God's kingdom. What is that called? What do you need? What did I need then? What do I still need? I'm still human. All of us need what the first thing is mentioned many, many times. It's called the fear of God. The fear of God. That doesn't make us perfect. It's not like the fear that God's about to punish you or hurt you. It's just a sense of magnificent awe at how great God is and how small we are and an awareness that in Him we live and move and have our being. And I don't care if someone of the opposite sex is attractive to you and they're not your mate. You get away from them. Flee fornication. Don't mess around with fornication. Don't mess around with adultery. Stop it. Get away from it before it takes you out of the church. God help you to wake up, whatever it is. Some of you want to steal. Some of you want to drink too much. Get away from it. Get rid of all the liquor in your house if you have to. How do you quit smoking? By keeping your cigarettes in your front pocket just in case. Don't have it just in case. Just get away from it totally, whatever it is. Do you think the Scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns to envy? Or jealousy, but he who gives more grace says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you're generally humble and you mean it, it will begin to show in everything you think and say and do. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil. The devil will come in and stir you up and stir you up. And when I've been stirred up by things like that in the past, I've had bad thoughts come in my mind at night and I had to fight them and pray about them and sometimes fast about them. Resist the devil. It may be Satan himself that's after you. You young women approaching middle age, you think this is my last chance to have a fling. You men who have some younger woman and some pretty women kind of look at you special or do something. Get away. Fight it. Satan may be using that person to take you out of the church, to take you out of the kingdom of God forever. Don't give in to it. Never, never, never quit. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, be actively fighting the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. How do you draw near to God? As I've said, you study this book. Study it sometimes on your knees to where you mean it. God, teach me. God, fashion me and mold me. Help me really become like you are, to think as you think, to feel as you feel, to want what you want. Ask God to do that, each one of you. Is that what you want? You want to be in God's kingdom. You want to live forever. Don't play games with God. Don't do it. Stay away from it. So draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify you hearts, you double-minded. Lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. But he knows whether you are really humble or whether you're just playing games on the outside. He'll know by your actions, do you really change? Do you begin to actively give your life to God and everything that you have and everything's concerned about you? Turn back to 1 Peter 4 now, brethren. 1 Peter chapter 4. 
And let's begin in verse 12. 1 Peter 4, and God warns the brethren here through Peter near the end of the apostolic age. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Some of you will have a fiery trial fighting liquor, fighting sex, fighting upsets that you hate others in the church and you're competing with them and you get all mad at them and get all bent out of shape. Others of us will have fighting terrible trials because we may be threatened by the world. Some of us may be literally beat up and thrown in jail. Be willing to do that. Peter and Paul and James and John went through that over and over again. Paul must have had great scars all over his back. Don't think that's strange. As I've said, don't think it's strange or weird if Mr. Ames or Dr. Winnell or I or others of us get thrown in jail sometime. I get pretty worked up sometimes. I may something get something say something so strong later, they'll put me in jail. Well, I hope you'll pray for me, but you don't need to feel sorry or say, oh, well, he's not a true minister. God would never allow a true minister to have that happen. Well, Christ was in jail in a sense. They had him in, and, you know, held him and then beat him up and so on. Christ himself executed by the Roman authorities, by the powers that be, and Peter and Paul and others over and over again. Some of us may have that happen. Some of you may have it happen. Don't think it's strange. Rejoice to the extent that you're a partaker of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. Be grateful if you're allowed to suffer really directly for Christ's sake, not for something stupid or evil. Verse 17, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? If people are out on the fringe and they're not really doing the right thing and some people sitting in the church and you put on your Sabbath face wherever you are here, brethren, around the world and right here, I know that. You put on your Sabbath face, you're friendly, you're nice, and then you go back and beat your wife or curse or kick the cat or whatever you do, have a wrong attitude. Don't do that. Understand it. God is watching. I'm not watching. God is watching. Understand that. Have what we call the fear of God. So judgment must begin. What will be the end of those who don't really obey? If the righteous one is scarcely saved... Where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So commit your whole body and mind and life to God as into the hands of a faithful creator, and he will bless you and he will use you forever if you'll learn to really do that. Now, brethren, turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke Chapter 22, near the end of Luke's gospel about the life of Christ. Here, after the final Passover, and they were going out here, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives. Verse 39, Luke 22, verse 39, his disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. Here was the Son of God setting us the perfect example. He said, Father, if it is your will, if it's within God's will, that's what we all have to say. Remove this cup from me. Take this terrible trial away so I don't have to go through what I know lies just ahead. But not my will, but yours be done. 
And that's the attitude, brethren, every one of us has to have. Not my will, but yours be done. And we give our lives to God. And notice what Jesus did to get through that trial. What should you do when you enter a terrible time of trial? Then an angel appeared from heaven, strengthening him. And Jesus, knowing what was ahead, that terrible cursing, beating, yelling, spitting in his face, insulting him, and finally having the big lictor, Roman lictor, trained and tearing the hide off of him and being with that whip, tearing the hide right off of him until he would be raw, and finally taking him out and hanging him on a stake with spear jammed into his side. He was human. He was God in the flesh, but it hurt. He was still had a concern and a certain amount of human fear, I'm sure. Being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. Sometimes you have to go out, all out to get help from God. Don't be afraid to do that. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And so when he rose up, he came and found the disciples sleeping. What's happening to God's church at the end of the age? Half of us, if we're the virgins, of the parable of the virgins, are sleeping. Half of the virgins are sleeping. They're not awake. And so he said, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. So we've got to do that, brethren, with all of our hearts. And yet, brethren, I would say this one thing. I don't want to make you sorrowful and feel bad about these things that are coming. Again, remember this aspect of all of this, this aspect of all of this, back in Luke chapter 21 now, just a couple chapters back, Luke 21, he's describing what's about to happen we know the city of Jerusalem over there is split up right now. And the United Nations may give it to the Arabs, and yet the Jews will still live there under oppression. Horrible times are coming, and they're going to be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, verse 24. Verse 25, And there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. What's happening right now over in Wilmington, up the beach? The sea and the waves are roaring. This is just a tiny prelude. This is not the final thing. But this is going to happen all over the world more than ever. Men's hearts failing them for fear and the expectation of those things that are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then they will see. Wow, what a sight. Right at that time, they will see a great massive blinding light where you can't even look at it. They shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Verse 28. Now when these things begin to happen, brethren, I think they are beginning to happen in a small way at first, yes. But I think they are beginning to happen right now more than any time that I've been in God's church or God's work at least for almost 62 years. They are beginning to happen. Look up. Don't be sad. Do your part. Never, never give up. Put God's kingdom first. Don't water things down. But look up, he said, and lift up your heads in a sense in joy and anticipation because your redemption draws near. When that happens, Christ is coming. Christ is coming soon. So do everything you can to prepare for that. And as I said earlier, as these things come along in your life, try to get as close to God, not as far away or on the edge of the cliff, so to speak. Get as close to God as you can. 
Ask Christ to come and live his life fully in you and try with all your heart and your thoughts and your prayers to actually have the attitude of wanting God's will to fully be done in you and to think as God thinks, to feel as God feels, to want what God wants. And if God wants me to die before the end of this age, I should say, Father in heaven, your will be done. And I mean that. If God wants me to be thrown in prison and beat up, my wife wouldn't like that. She'd be sorrowful and praying for me. But if that helps the work, that's better. I need to feel as God feels, to think as God thinks, and to want what God wants. If your change is put here and there in the work, as I've been done dozens of times, I know Mr. Armstrong told me one time, he said, Rod, it's much easier when the elevator goes up. When the elevator goes down, he said, I know that's harder. But we all have to take changes in our life, whether it's in our job, in our family, and outside persecutions, whatever it is, to know that our life is God's life. It's not our life. And try constantly say, Lord Jesus, live your life in me and give me your attitude. Give me the mind of Christ. So that I will think as God thinks and feel as God feels and want what God wants. And then I will be there and be in the kingdom of God, interacting with the Father, interacting with Jesus Christ, having walked with them throughout this life, talking to them, praying to them, communing with them, fellowshipping, and eternally then fellowshipping with them and with the spirits of just men made perfect in the very kingdom of God, the family of God, and so fulfill the purpose for which God created you and me and the purpose for which he's called us and the purpose for which he's blessed us.